just thinking about the topic for this today and what we were going to speak on and just felt led to go to this topic. It just wouldn't go away. And so I've come to appreciate lying and how devastating it is because it's totally the opposite of what is true. It's totally the opposite of what is true. And if you put your faith in something that is not true, you're going to be affected by it. And so we see all the way through Scripture this issue of uh, lying. A lot of different lies we'll see in Scripture. Now, we understand in our society, even the unsaved people, they, they still, to a little bit of small degree, have a problem with lying. They don't like liars. Even your unsaved people, they don't like liars. But they're becoming more accustomed to it, right? <laughs> and so you're just seeing lying everywhere. There's lying everywhere. You go buy a product, and they tell you this product is the best thing since sliced bread, right? You take it home, not so much. And so you think about it, where is this lying coming from? And so we can look at the time that we're in, and you can see that lying is really affecting the culture that we're in today. I joke all the time with the church that I think, uh, you know, Satan has a throne. And I often said that I think it's in Washington, D.C. today. Well, how do you know that? Because of the amount of lying that comes out of there. <laughs> you know, Satan is the one, and we'll find today, he's the one that is the author of lying. So wherever you see lying, you can know for a fact that Satan is behind it. Whenever we are tempted to lie, you can know for a fact that Satan is behind it. And so lies just don't happen in a vacuum. And what we're going to see today, I believe, is that Satan uh, uses lying. It's a, it's a really potent weapon that he has. And it's very effective because you can deceive people very easily with a lie. Now, we, <laughs> I just looked up some quotes on the Internet here, but this is the one that I remember. My father used to tell us this all the time. A lie can go all the way around the world before truth gets its pants on. You've heard that one? Now, this is interesting how many people are, remember who quoted this. Some people say that it's one person or another. This, they say Winston Churchill. Someone said it was someone else. It doesn't really matter, but it is true. I've seen that that, that does happen. You can tell a lie, and a lie just takes flight. And it takes a while but truth catches up with it. And so it's, it's a very effective thing that Satan uses. And so we'll look at some of the, the instances in Scripture how lying really took an effect or had an effect. And we'll look at some of the examples of it and what it did. One of the things that is interesting to me was the one, if you look over, and it's actually recorded a couple of times in 1 Kings um, 22 and also in Second Chronicles 18 about King Ahab, or as Dr. Schaefer used to call him, lover boy. <laughs> and so he believed a lie. And I think it's one of the greatest illustrations to show you what lying can do. He believed a lie and it led to his demise. And we're going to look at that and you can see what is lying? Lying is the opposite of what is true. 
Uh, and mentioning Dr. Schaefer, he gave a definition of it, uh, truth. And truth, he saw, and I, I, I really think it's a good definition, is seeing things the way that they really are. And you have people today, I, I, I don't know, and I'm, I guess there's been a lot of lying that has gone on before, but looking at it today, I, I'm, you're just looking in amazement at the amount of lying that's going on, the depth of it. And what is even more shocking is the effectiveness of it. The effectiveness of it. That people are lying and saying things that are absolutely have no basis in fact whatsoever in and outside of the church. And the people are not as wise about what's going on. And it's interesting, you'll see that Satan is the author of it, and he's the one that's manipulating it all behind the scenes. Now, we'll see in this that Satan does a lot of things. Lying is not the only thing that he does. Really, most of the things that Satan does, most people will not even notice it. Do you realize that? I know, we grew up thinking about Satan as the, the uh, I won't say the story that we used to say back in my hometown. I told my wife if I wasn't going to say that anymore. But it was one of these mytho- mythological things that we had about Satan uh, back in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, but we won't, we won't mention that. But most people believe that Satan is some, it's in some, first of all, the myth is that he's in hell. You realize he's never been there? He is not there. Neither is he running around in a red suit with a pitchfork. And so as long as people believe that, they would never really have an appreciation for what he really does. And we'll see it in and outside the church. Uh, Some of the things that Satan has done, most people don't recognize it as satanic at all. In fact, they just totally ignore that this could even be a spiritual issue at all. And that makes him very effective. That makes him highly effective. And so we'll look at that. So you look at some of the 13 on that first page there, you'll see there's 13 different weapons that we'll look at that Satan has to manipulate. Um, some of these things, for example, you've been told um, that some of these things that Satan does, oh, you have some kind of a chemical imbalance or you've got some kind of a psychological problem. I'm going to tell you, and I, like I tell a lot of people in a lot of places that I go, you can actually, I can save you a lot of money. I can save you a lot of money on your psycholo- psychological bills. Uh, a lot of what you're holding to is really just satanic. And if you understand how Satan works and you understand how you could um, have victory over him, you could actually save yourself a lot of money. What does he do? He causes disappointment. Uh, disappointment in circumstances, I deserve better than this. Discouragement. Independence from God. Oh, I'll make a decision. Hey, I want to go to another location. I just decide, hey, I want to do it. I don't have to consult anybody. I'm my own man. I do what I want to do, right? Well, there's just one little issue. If you call yourself a believer and you believe the facts of the gospel, Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. 
If you believe those facts, there's one little issue. You were bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to him. And he has a will for your life. And that he's the one that you should consult before you make decisions. I see a lot of people, and what's interesting to me is that a lot of the problems, and I'm not going to say all of them, but a great many of the problems that believers are suffering from today is they're the captain of their ship. I had a friend back in, in uh, Oregon who was, I, I thought he had the gift of pastor teacher. He didn't want to use that gift. He wanted to be a businessman. And so he was waiting for his ship to come in. And I told him, it's, I think it's going to be more like the Titanic than the love boat. <laughs> and that's kind of what's going to happen uh, in that situation. And so you see all of these things. It's independence from God, pride. Well, aren't you taught today to be prideful? You're exalted on being prideful. Um, Self-esteem, you've heard of that? That's been drilled in people for the last however many years. Look, I don't think that there is a disconnect between this drilling of self-esteem and the craziness of the people that you see. I don't think there's a lack lack of self-esteem. I think there's too much self-esteem. What does it say in Scripture? God opposes the proud. He stands in opposition against those who are proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You see. And so, but people think that pride is satanic? Absolutely not. You go talk to most unsaved people today, and you tell them that you don't have enough uh, self-esteem, and they'll think, well, there's something wrong with you. Even as they take their Xanax or whatever it is that they're taking. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> so there's other destructive lust that Satan also engages in, and we'll see it. But lying, when you look at scripture, it's interesting. Lying is an interesting thing that he does. And it is so subtle that most people don't don't really even recognize what he's doing. And so we'll look at that and we'll see how Satan is using uh, lying uh, and he's using that. And I think it's it's one of the centerpieces of what he's doing to deceive the entire world. One of the things that he wants to do is keep the entire world wandering. Look at, uh, if you will, Revelation, the 12th chapter. Now, notice in Revelation, the 12th chapter, this is an interesting um, um, chapter because it's just there's a lot of things happening here. And uh, John goes back in time and then he goes forward. And we're not going to labor here. We'll come back here. But I just want to read this verse as we finish our introduction. And notice he said, um, so we told you before that Satan is not in hell. Satan right now, what you can prove from Scripture, has access to God. He goes back and forth from earth to heaven on a continuum. And what does he do? He accuses the brethren before God. It's not going to be until the middle of the tribulation period that Satan is denied access to heaven 
And when he's denied access to heaven, then he's going to realize he's running out of time. And his time is short. But a good example of seeing that he has access to to God is in uh, Job chapter one, where he goes right up into the third heaven. Now, this troubles a lot of people. They can't believe that God would allow this being who is, has rebelled against him to still go right up into the third heaven, but he does. There's a period in time when God's going to deal with Satan, and at that, that, that point, that time is, is uh, in the future, and he's going to be dealt with. But at this point in time, he still has access to heaven. Now, what's interesting is you'll see it in this chapter is that when he's denied his access to heaven, he comes down to the earth, and what does it say in this chapter? Having great wrath. Why do I say that? Because one of the things is today is that you do not see the wrath of Satan today. You know what Satan is really excelling in? Is blending into the scene. He's he's being very effective in your churches. Very effective. He's running roughshod through the church. And most people do not even recognize what he is doing. And so notice in Revelation, the 12th chapter, verse 9, you see here is an example of what's going to happen to him in the future. And this is going to start the clock. And verse 9, and there was a, and uh, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, uh, which deceives the whole world. And he was cast out onto the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so you see, here's the first time that Satan's denied access to heaven. He then realizes because he doesn't have this access anymore. I'm running out of time. And when he comes down to the earth, you're going to see somebody said that what makes the tribulation period, the worst period on the face of the earth is not only do you have the wrath of God, but you have the wrath of Satan. That's something you have not seen before. Up to this point in time, he's working behind the scenes and he's working by stealth. And I'll say to you again, most of the things that he does, most people do not recognize it whatsoever. They've consigned it to some other thing. And the world system has helped you to consign it to some other category. And Satan is all happy for that to be so. Because if you don't see him for what he's doing, you will never, ever, ever have victory over him. But we'll see today that one of the things that is very deceptive that he does is this issue of lies and how he's able to use it to deceive people in such a way that most of them never realize what he's doing. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers, we have the opportunity to see things the way they really are. We're thankful that as we have your word, which is true, that we're able to, through it, as we're eliminated uh, through uh, to your word, through the Holy Spirit, that we're able to see through the darkness of this world and to see things in the right way. And we're so thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so we see this issue of lies. And so we want to start off with the point of deception. And so the issue of deception. And so you see this um, throughout the course of Scripture. And I do want to point you back to this. I did want to 
go through this. We, went, we were going back through a series on truth back some years ago, and I just thought this was a really neat quote here about the truth. And it says, the truth is the truth, even if no one believes it. You know that you heard that thing if a tree falls in the forest. Did anyone did it even did it even fall if no one heard it? And I think that people say this, you know, if everyone believes a lie, it's got to be true. Right. And so we judge how many people believe something as to whether it's true. How many people are going along with it? As to whether it's true. But the truth is the truth, even if no one believes it. A lie is a lie, even if everyone believes it. It doesn't change it. Okay. I decide that I can fly. Is that true or is that a lie? I get up on the 40-story building and you tell me, jump, Kevin, you can do it, you can do it, jump. What do you think is going to happen? Reality will set in. And it's not going to be pretty. It doesn't matter how much and how many people believe that something is true. I don't care how much you say it. I don't care how much you pound the pulpit. I don't care how many people you go, get to go along with it. It's not going to change a lie into the truth. Now, notice we looked at this idea of Satan deceiving the whole world. And there are several words that we want to look at from a Hebrew point of view. And there's a lot of deception words that are used in Scripture. And so we just want to uh, look through some of them and then uh, in the Hebrew and then in the Greek. And you'll find it is very interesting in some of the ways that they're being used. <clears throat> so you have the first word is hatel. And it's used in Scripture with the uh, taking a, of a um, different direction that previous, than previously indicated with the implication of acting deceitfully. Um, and so it's used of Pharaoh <clears throat> and then it's used in Judges of Samson. Uh, <clears throat> and so Samson, uh, Delilah accused Samson of being deceitful and how and telling her the answer uh, as to where his strength lied. You have the word uh, rhema, which is used in scripture uh, of leading away from what is right. And so I have, uh, I think a chart here of these different words. And so what I wanted to do was list the words and then kind of give you an indication of the definitions and then the method that I think is used there and who was causing it. Well, Satan used people here, but Satan is still the origin of these. And so you have uh, Hatel, Nasa, Patha, and Rama. And so uh, then you have Patha, which is used in scripture of um, that which is enlarged beyond the truth in order to convince. It goes beyond what is true. And the, the purpose of it is to convince someone of something that you want done. Look at, if you would, um, 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 20. Now, this is one of the most fascinating stories in Scripture. I think it's a great illustration of what can happen when, um, when uh, you're deceived and you can be deceived. You know, you're, you're trusting a lot in people to tell you the truth about what is, what is, the, what is right, uh, either outside of, in the outside world or also in the church. And when you don't have the proper information, it, it could really be a, um, a fatal situation <laughs> in a lot of instances. And so, Lotus in 1 Kings chapter 22, we, 
we find this, um, this um, incident that happened with King Ahab. And just to give you a little backdrop before we go into it, uh, he was wanting to go to um, war, or Jeho- Jehoshaphat wanted him to go to war with him. And he wanted uh, King Ahab to consult uh, his people to see if he could go to war with him. So he goes to his uh, Micaiah, or I think he goes to the, um, uh, his prophets first, and they lie to him. And they say, oh, go to, go to battle. You're going to be successful. He goes to the prophet of God, Micaiah, and Micaiah tells him, don't go. God has shown me to tell you, do not go. If you go to battle, you will not make it back. Who do you think Ahab listened to? <laughs> it, was fa- it was a fatal mistake that he made. But what was interesting about this is that we see some, hap- some things happening in the spirit world behind the scenes in, in, in a way that you don't find in other places. And God shows us and opens up uh, the behind the scenes world and shows us some of the things that were going on here as to why, uh, what happened here and what brought this about. If you start, if you would, uh, in First Kings chapter 22, and let's pick it up. Um, uh, let's to get some context. In verse eight. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Emel, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him for he does prophesy good. Uh, he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, hasten hither, Micaiah, the son of Emel. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, each sat on his throne having put on his robes in a void uh, uh, place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, the son of uh, Chaniah, uh, made him horns of iron. And he said, thus said the Lord with these shalt thou push the Syrians until thou, until thou have consumed them. And all the prophets prophesied and said, go up to Ramoth Gilead and, pro- and prosper for the Lord shall deliver it unto the king's hand. And the messenger was gone to call Micaiah, and he spake unto him, saying, Behold, now says the word of the prophets, Declare the good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. And Micaiah says, As the Lord has liveth what the Lord said unto me, will I speak. So uh, he came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle? Shall we forbear? And he answered and said, go and prosper. The Lord shall deliver thee into your hands, uh, deliver you into the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, how many times shall I adjure thee that you shall tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy no good concerning me, but evil? Um, and he said, hear thou, therefore, the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Now, he's going to give us some insight into how this came about, 
How did these prophets come to the point to lie to Ahab the way they did? Now, you think that people just lie for their own purposes. And I'm sure there's some of that to it. They're gaining something from it. But what we'll see in Scripture is that Satan is the one who causes people to lie. When I am tempted to lie, when you are tempted to lie, it is satanic and demonic to not tell the truth. And the world system is predicated on it. It's all built upon things that are not true. And notice what he says. Hear thou the word of the Lord. I saw, I heard the, I saw the Lord sitting on this throne and all the host of heaven standing by him and at his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, uh, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Ahab's name had come up in the book of the living. It was time for him to die. Who's going to persuade him to go up so that this will happen? Now notice what happens here. And one said on this manner and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. Now this word for persuade is our word here um, for not. I think it's Nasha. It's uh, excuse me, Patha, uh, which is uh, I will persuade him or to. I, I would translate it here to, to, it's to enlarge or go beyond, to say something that is, enlarges or goes beyond what is true. I will persuade him, and the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he says, I will go and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he says, thou shalt persuade him and prevail, so also go forth, or go forth and do so. And so the rest you can read there. Ahab goes to battle. Looks like he's going to make it. War is over. He even disguises himself just for good measure to make sure. At the end of the battle, a soldier takes out an arrow and just aimlessly pulls it and lets go. And it finds the arrow finds Ahab right in the chink of his armor. And he died, just as Micaiah had told him he was going to. How did he get there? He believed a lie. One guy versus a lot of prophets. The one guy told him what was true. He believed a lie. And we can see... It's just fascinating to me. There's not very many places in Scripture where you see what's happening behind the scenes and how the demons are involved in bringing this about. And this is one of the few places that you see it in Scripture, and it's really fascinating to see. And so you can see also that uh, Satan and demons are involved in that. And then the last one is the word nasha, uh, which is the word for to cause one to have false notions. And you see it with Eve. Look at uh, Genesis, the third chapter, in verse 13. So um, nasha to cause one to have false notions. Uh, and the thing that it appeals to is pride. And Satan is the one that is involved in it. And so you see it in Genesis uh, chapter 3. So notice what Satan does here. And so we have some New Testament commentary, too, concerning this that really helps us in a lot of ways to understand what was going on here. 
And so Satan goes up to Eve and, uh, you know, you know, uh, in chapter two that God had told them that you can eat from any tree in the garden except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the serpent, you know, how do we know that this serpent is Satan? Hey, there you go. Then, <laughs> Yeah, if you took the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament, if you didn't have the Old Testament, you wouldn't know that. But we have a New Testament revelation that this serpent is Satan. And so uh, notice he says here in verse nine, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said, where art thou? And he says, I have heard uh, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself or I concealed myself. And he says, who told you you were naked? Has thou eaten from the tree? Wherefore, I commanded thee that thou should not eat. And the man or Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the the serpent beguiled me. That word beguiled there is actually the word nasha. And it's uh, to give one a false to give one false hopes. About something. Well, you can see all these kind of mechanisms that are happening in the world, inside the church, a lot of twisting, mishandling of the truth. And you say, well, it's just a little white lie. And somebody says, okay, well, what about a little white lie? Let me show you what you can do with a little white lie. What if I gave you a glass of strychnine? No, let's turn it around the other way. You wouldn't take that, right? What if I gave you a glass of water and I put just an ounce or a drop of strychnine in it? Would you take it? You wouldn't. I couldn't convince one person here to take it. Why? Because you would know that it was contaminated. And so when you, um, this word for uh, beguiled has this idea of uh, to give one false hopes by misrepresenting what is true. You're giving one false hopes about something, and that's what he did there with Eve. And so over in the New Testament, you have some other uh, deception words. You have um, the first word that we deal with is the word delo, and uh, it's an interesting word. Uh, I'll give it this definition, of, or Vines gives it this definition. I'll give you mine later. Uh, it primarily signifies to ensnare or to corrupt especially by mingling the truths of God's word with false doctrines and notions, and so handling it deceitfully. I mean, it's really effective if you say, take something that is true. If, if someone came and they told you a complete lie, you wouldn't believe it. You know what makes a lie very effective? Is that a great much of it is true. It makes it highly effective. And so this particular word is used 15 times as a noun. Um, and notice it's used in a lit case four times to emphasize um, the mechanisms that's used in order to deceive. And so let's look at a few of those. Um, let's look at Second Corinthians uh, chapter 12 and verse 16. We've been going through Second Corinthians in our Bible study, and it's just a really fascinating book. And 
it doesn't seem obvious um, that Satan is a big part of this book. And you look at some of the things that are going on here, and a lot of them are very satanic. And, you know, one of the things I like about this book is the fact that you find things out about the Apostle Paul in this book that you, you don't find out on his apostolic journeys. He really gives you some insight as to what he was thinking. And notice in Second Corinthians chapter 12, notice in verse 16, you know, Paul is talking about that this is the means uh, by how the false teachers deceived others. And so he's using it and asking a rhetorical question to the Corinthians if he were doing if he was doing what they were doing. And so notice in verse 16, he says, be it so I did not burden you. Well, that's what they were doing. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. And so he's asking the question, did I use guile to catch you? And what is that word guile? There is actually this word, this, um, this uh, deceitfulness that is used when you, um, we see over in the second chapter of Second uh, uh, Corinthians, Paul says that what these guys were doing is they were hawking the word of God. Do you know there's a lot of people who are standing in pulpits all across this fruited plain of ours who are taking the word of God and they're mixing it with their own notions. They're mixing it with psychobabble. They're mixing it with philosophy. They're mixing it with all kinds of things that are absolutely not true. And they're deceiving people left and right. And that's what these guys were doing. And he says, did I do that to you? Notice another place you see it is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Oh, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul talks about the Thessalonians as he was in Thessalonica. Um, let me get to my Greek words here. As he was in Thessalonica, he uh, had this ministry among the Thessalonians. And notice uh, it was just a wonderful church, the Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonian church. And notice uh, what he says about them and how he responded to them, uh, if I can get there. <laughs> First Thessalonians 2. Okay, there we go. And so notice what he says here. These, if you look over in the first chapter, uh, if you believe the facts of the gospel, it's very possible that you can start growing immediately. And, and I think it's very important that you understand that there is no gap between you maturing. Um, there's, you don't have to be in the church for 10 or 15 years to grow and mature. From the time that you become a believer and you believe the facts of the gospel, Christ died on the cross for our sins and he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. You can immediately mature. And you could see these believers were growing. And how do you know it? Well, look at the first chapter there in First Thessalonians chapter one. In verse three, he says, remembering without ceasing your work from faith, fruit of the spirit. You don't exercise the fruit of the spirit unless you're being filled by the Holy Spirit. Your labor from love. Fruit of the spirit, love. Your patience from hope in, the, in, the, in um, our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God, uh, God, our father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God 
For our gospel came um, unto you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know, what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Now notice here. Here's another fruit. With joy. What? Afflictions are pressures. Pressures that it's, there are things that will happen to you in life and which you look and it look like everywhere you look, there's pressure coming in from all sides. If you try to handle that with your own strength. You'll crumble. You can't do it. God gives you the power as you count yourself to be who he says you are in Christ and access the grace that he's provided for you in Christ, he provides you the power to operate in this life. You can't operate without it. You see these people here? You go back in Acts chapter 17, immediately after they were saved, immediately after they were saved, they endured afflictions. They were pressured. You can't endure this by, as they say, manning up. Or womaning up. Is that a word? (laughs) You can't endure it either way. God has to provide the power to operate. The problem is not today that God doesn't provide power The problem is that believers will not access his power. That's the problem. Notice what he goes on to tell them because of these things in the first chapter. In chapter two, he says in verse one, for you yourselves, brethren, know our entrance unto you that it was not in vain. But even as we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, in Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not out of what? Deceit. We weren't taking the word of God and using it for our own purposes. We weren't mixing it for our gain. We see a lot of that today, right? Deceit. I watch TV sometime. I don't watch it as much as I used to. But I look at some of these guys who are just talking on TV. One of the personalities you will. I won't mention his name, but you know who I'm talking about. He says, this is your Bible. It says what it says. It says he takes the Bible, promptly puts it down and never picks it up again. Never really talks about it again. It's not the power of the man in which you're relying. It's the power of the word of God. You should be directed to scripture, the word of God that tells you how to live by the power that God has already provided. And you have people who are engaging even as we speak. By or in deceit. They're very deceitful. Well, let me show you an example since we're here. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 11 chapter. You think that Satan 
again, ha- people have this view of Satan. And, and I just think that there's so many missing. There's a lot of false notions about what Satan is doing and who he is. And so a lot of people, you hear him say, well, Satan was the one that called this person to, to, to murder this other person. No, he didn't. He didn't. Satan really is ashamed of these people that are going around murdering people. You know what Satan wants? He wants people to act nice and, and kind to people because he doesn't. If he actually had everyone killing each other off, what system would he have to rule over? Notice here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul is talking about these guys that he's uh, contending with. And so what they were doing was so effective in how they were deceiving the, the, the believers at Corinth that the believers at Corinth actually began to think that Paul was the false apostle. And they turned on Paul. This is how effective a lie can be. And so notice what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice, go down if you would in verse 12. He says, but what I do, I uh, do that I will, uh, excuse me, but what I do that I will do that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion that they may glory and be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves. And so here you have a uh, uh, this metaschema, which is really interesting. And you ever heard the word schema before? We don't use that a lot today. Huh? You ever told someone, I like how your schema looks? <laughs> well, it's the word fashion. It's how it comes across in the English. It's the outward appearance of things. What do these, what do these guys do? Their focus is on changing the outward appearance to be what it needs to be to convince you of what they need to convince you of. And they are highly effective. And so notice what he says here. They're deceitful workers transforming themselves. And so they're uh, doing it themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers be transformed as what? Ministers of evil. Ministers of people who go out and shoot and maim and murder. Ministers who do drugs? No. Ministers of righteousness. Highly effective. It's highly effective. And so notice, uh, this word is used with a lot of evil words. Dulo is, uh, um, excuse me, Delo is used with a lot of evil words. It's used with kakos. Kakos evil is used of that which is lacking in character. Um, and it's more of a single-minded lacking in characterness. You're not really trying to spread it. So look at, if you would, in Second um, Peter, or First Peter 2, 1. You talk about believers that were going through it. Here's another group of believers that um, these group, this group of believers that he's talking about here um, were believers that were suffering uh, in, in um, the time of the Roman Empire, in the time of Nero. 
Nero uh, set the Rome on fire and he blamed it on the Christians. All kinds of persecution ensued. And these believers were on the run from Rome as a result of it. And Peter writes to them and notice he says in verse one, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envy and all evil speakings. And so this word for laying aside this word malice is the word for kakos. It's um, evil um, that is lacking in character, but you're, you're content to have that by uh, yourself. And it's also used with other kind of evil words. This word for uh, delo or doulos is. Uh, it's used with covetousness. Um, uh, in Mark uh, 7.22, it's used with fornication and some other evils in Romans 1.29. Um, it's also used uh, as an articular use, but we won't, we won't get into that for time's sake. Certain characteristics are necessary for doulo, uh, this kind of evil, to occur. Notice, we saw back in 2 Corinthians that... Um, uh, if you turn back to Second Corinthians twelve sixteen again, uh, that there were there was this issue of craftiness, that this kind of deceitfulness is um, is uh, paired with craftiness. Second Corinthians chapter two, uh, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter um, twelve and verse sixteen. And so, uh, remember, we were back here just a little bit ago. Now, we looked at the word for guile earlier, but here's this, this word for craftiness. And it's the word um, pan ergo, um, orgos, orgos, I can get it out of here, pan orgos. And so this word for craftiness is the ideal that someone is deceitful and they're, they're willing to do whatever is necessary in order to convince you to do what they want you to do. And so this idea of craftiness, you, you see it there. Turn it, if you would, over to Acts, the 13th chapter, and you see an example of it. Or make that Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And so notice, uh, one of the things you see in the church today is this problem, again, with the... Um, uh, the uh, teachers, the false teachers who, um, through deceit, are affecting the, the believers. And so Paul said that one of the purposes of the spiritual gifts was for the perfecting of the saints. I mean, one of the things we focus on here uh, as a local church is the building up of the saints. And that's the focus, to build up the saints, to make the saints all they need to be. So as they go out into the world and into their families and to wherever God sends them, that they're strong, they're uh, enabled by God to be able to be all that they need to be. And no, notice he says, these spiritual gifts in general were given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to a unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and into a, a we're perfect, it's a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, and the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And so this idea of being able to change and to do uh, things um, in order to uh, convince, to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And I'm looking at my, for my timekeeper. I don't know. I think it's, what does the schedule say? Oh, you still have 
Oh, okay. And so the idea of craftiness, of someone who is deceitful and they're able to do things and to change on a moment's notice in order to convince you of the things that they need uh, to have done. Another word that is uh, used for deceitfulness or, or deceit or uh, deception is apathe, and it's used in scripture of that which gives a false impression, whether by appearance or statement of influence. And so you, you give someone a false impression uh, about what is true. Um, notice, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 22, you, since we're there, And so here it's used with regarding the um, the old position, uh, the, the old man or the, man, the, old, the believer's old position in Christ. And if Ephesians chapter four and verse 22, uh, let's start with verse uh, 21. If it so be that you have heard of him, that you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation. Uh, so when you, when you look at conversation, here is the word anastrepho. Anastrepho is your um, habit of life. Uh, we were talking about it with Pastor Dennis last night, and I think that what has happened in the church uh, for a long time is that the church has focused on rituals. Rituals. It's not about who you are, it's what you did. Right? And so people can say, I'm a deacon in the church, or I sing in the choir. And they focused on all of these things. And the emphasis really, from a scriptural point of view, is on how I live my habit of life. How does it look and how I live my life? My life should be lived in such a way that the life of the son who is indwelling me can be seen outward. A lot of emphasis has been put in the church on positions. I'm the pastor. I'm the mother of the church. None of that really matters as much as how do you live your life. And so that and the strafford there has that that you put off the former conversation or your manner of life. I would say your habit of life. Uh, which is the old man. Here he's looking at your position in Adam, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust and be renewed by the spirit. And that word spirit is belonging to your mind. And so the word for corrupt there is uh, this word, that this old life, this old position here, it gives a false impression of what is really true. And you can see that that uh, happens throughout the course of Scripture. Notice, if you would, this is also used of Eve over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We get a New Testament commentary of what happened there. And this was how um, Satan was able to deceive her, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians, Would to God that you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear that lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve. And so here you see it from a New Testament point of view. He gave her a false impression of what was true. And what did he tell her? 
God doesn't, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows that when you eat from it, you'll be like God's. Having a knowledge of what is good and what is evil. And so he was able to um, deceive her with, with that um, impression. Um, if you look over in First uh, Tim- Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14... You see, again, this word is used of Eve. And it looks at the fact that, that there was a point that she was deceived. And, and you see that it's in the passive voice. Someone was doing it to her. And she was really she was thoroughly deceived. So we've all been deceived, right? People have done things to us. And somebody comes to the house. Just people that come to the house and they're selling things. My wife tells me not to answer the door anymore because I'm gullible. They're selling magazines. I said, sure. Oh, we're selling this for this cause, you know, this kind of thing. And, you know, I'm a sucker, I guess. But I know that I'm being taken in that light. But, you know, I'm okay with it. But then there's people that deceive you and you actually believe everything that they say. And it is absolutely not true. And that's what it says here about Eve in uh, verse 14 here. Adam was not deceived. So when Satan came to Adam or Eve went to Adam, Adam, he clearly understood what was going on there. And what God said was true. He never doubted it. Not one bit. He understood what was going on. Eve actually believed that what she was doing was right. She was completely deceived. You ever that ever happened to you? Did you get down the road and then you find out? I was suckered. And then how did it happen? Somebody told you a lie. They gave you a false impression. And they sucked you right in. You know, you can see that in, in, a, in real time. It's a very hurtful thing to people when they find out that they've been deceived. You've put your trust in someone or something and you find out What did they say today? You were suckered. Really, it's satanic. Eve was completely convinced that what she was doing was right. You see people today who are holding to doctrines from Scripture who actually believe that what they're doing is right. And you show them in the Bible that this is not true. And I don't care how many times you show them it's not true. They're convinced. That what they're doing is right, and it's, um, well, they're getting a little help. And that's why. And so you have this one for apate. So here we have the Greek word for uh, deception. We have the uh, apatao, which is another form of it, and ex apatao. Now, this is more, the sin nature is using that one in Romans chapter 7, verse 11. Then you have the one we were working on, which is uh, deleo, which is uh, the noun form dolas. And then you have this one, which is what we're going to come back to, which is planao, which is what it says that Satan is doing, that he's deceiving the whole world. How is he doing that? I believe that he's using various mechanisms of deception to cause the whole world to wander away from what is true. The way things really are. And, you know, again, this idea that you can tell someone something that's true and it doesn't really matter at some level 
you know, whether it's true or not, because there's, say, some satanic involvement that if that person is not able to um, overcome Satan, that the truth doesn't matter at some point. And so you have this, these words that are used of deception that are used there. Um, the primary word that is used for planao in the uh, New Testament, uh, or excuse me, the primary word for the deception in the New Testament is planao. Planao is translated uh, in chapter 12 of Revelation 9, uh, deceiveth. Uh, and it is a form that is used six times in the New Testament. It's used in this form five times of direct or indirect satanic involvement. And so notice, you'll see a couple of times where um, God says in uh, the book of Revelation that Satan's deceiving the entire world. Look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2. Now, here is when Satan is going to go be placed in the Hades. Again, I, I caution you, he's not there. You really won't find a scripture that says that Satan is in hell. I know you've heard it all your life. But scripture says he's not. Here's where he's going to be placed there. At the end of the tribulation period, Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. And the reason that he's going to be bound is God is showing something here. He's showing through the various dispensations that there's something wrong with man. And so I remember there was a, a picture when we were younger called, um, it was a variety show that came on TV called Flip Wilson. And some of you will remember that. And one of his old sayings was, the devil made me do it. <laughs> right. And so everyone knew that. I mean, that was a famous saying, the devil made me. Do you know how many people believe that the majority of the things they do today, that the devil made them do it? You know, the devil makes you do a lot of things, but he's not all encompassing. The worst enemy that the believer has today is our sin nature, this fallen nature that's in the believer. So God is going to bind Satan for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. And one of the things that he's going to show is that even with Satan out of the world way, the world system out of the way, people are still going to act evil. Dennis talked about that period, right? In the millennial kingdom, the curse is going to be removed. It's just going to be there's going to be peace on earth. Uh, there's not, you know, people who sing peace on earth today. There's not going to be peace on earth today. It's not going to be peace until the sun institutes peace and puts peace in place with the millennial kingdom. And so Satan's going to be bound. Nobody's going to be able to have to fight against Satan. And what's going to happen? People still are going to rebel against God. You know why? At the end of the day, the biggest enemy of people is right there in front of the mirror every morning. And so you'll see that in the millennial kingdom. So here we see it here in verse um, one of chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of a, the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. You see, now when you think of a chain, don't think of a chain like a chain that pulls a car outside. I don't think that's going to bind Satan. And this is a good example that, you know, you, when you look at scripture, you got to look, you, you got to look at it from a different point of view. That it's not a chain like we see a chain, but he's going to be, bind him for a thousand years. 
and you're going to have for, for the first time uh, where there's, Satan is bound. He's not going to be interfering and there's just going to be absolute peace on the earth. Absolute peace. And you know what? It's going to be such a great time. People that complain about the cops. OK, you complain about the cops. The angels are going to be the cops. And you're going to rather that the other cops would have been in play. <laughs> I guarantee you, because what they're going to do is they're going to take out of the kingdom all things that offend and those who commit lawlessness. Immediately. It's just going to be a wonderful time. But Satan's going to be bound. And notice it says that the one deceiving um, the whole where we at in verse three. Twenty two um, that he's oh, excuse me, that he should not that he laid a hold of him, the dragon, that the old serpent, which is the devil. And he bound him for a thousand years. And I'm looking for my decept- deception word. Um, oh, is it three? And he cast him in the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seat upon him that he should not. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Deceive the nations no more. And so what is he doing? What is Satan actively engaged in? You look at the world and you think that all of this is going on and that um, there's nobody in control of it. And that it's just haphazard behind the scenes. It's not haphazard. It's really very organized. And Satan is manipulating the rulers of this world. Not only them. He's manipulating in the people of the world. And what is he doing? He's causing them to wander away from what is really true. And I really think we'll see next um, hour that a lie is a big factor in that. It is a huge factor in what he does. Saying things that are absolutely not true. It's fascinating to me. I used to, when I first went to seminary and I learned some of the things I was learning in um, seminary, I would go home and I would read the, uh, or listen to the radio, Christian radio station, and I was perplexed. I would learn what I was learning from scripture and I would listen to what I was listening on the radio and many times there was a chasm between the two. And you say, well, how does this happen? How does this happen that you have people who are believing things that you can actually prove right here? And they, and they refuse to believe it. You can actually show them. And they still won't believe it. Well, it's not just the fact that, you know, you and I are not good spokesmen. That probably may be true from my, my, from my point of view. But that there is a lot of things going on behind the scenes and we see that Satan has a big role in that. And so if you are a believer, you have the ability, we'll see, to be able to recognize what Satan is doing and how to have victory over him. You can recognize what Satan does. And how to have victory over him. If you're an unbeliever, sorry, I don't have any good news for you. Well, I do. Believe the facts of the gospel. Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day that you might be saved. And I think that brings us to 
Oh, we still have more time? Oh, okay. Oh, we don't have more time. Okay. All right. <laughs> Father, we are grateful for the opportunity of being able to um, look at these things and thankful that we have the truth of your word in which we're able to see things the way they really are as we're illuminated by your Holy Spirit. Thankful for that, that we can actually glorify you in that way. We'd ask that you would, uh, we thank you for the food that was provided and just would ask that it would bless, uh, that it would nourish our bodies in your son's name we pray. Amen.